Good evening, everyone. I'm Betsy Bennett, director of the museum. I see a lot of familiar faces here. I appreciate your being here tonight. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to thank the folks from Audubon, North Carolina, who have partnered with the museum on our new exhibit up on the second floor called Hunters of the Sky. If you haven't had a chance to see that, it'll be here for a few months. And, uh, it's really dramatic, and uh, we're glad for our partnership with Audubon, North Carolina. And they also uh, are providing our guest speaker tonight, their own executive director, Chris Canfield. And I know that most of us are here because we care about North Carolina, and particularly about a special place in North Carolina, the Pocosin Lakes Wildlife Refuge. The museum has led workshop for many years uh, for educators in the Pocosin Lakes areas. And like many of us, they always marvel at the wonder of that very special place. And for the past four years, Chris Canfield has led efforts to protect the Pocosin Lakes National Wildlife Refuge from Navy plans to build an outlying landing field known as the OLF adjacent to the property. In fact, he was in Washington this afternoon working with national sporting and conservation groups to tell the media about their united opposition to this site. And you'll be seeing uh, some of that media coverage uh, tomorrow in the paper and um, on the airways. Chris is also a former Air Force officer with the Pentagon, which no doubt gives him a unique perspective we're lucky to have him here tonight to clarify the issues concerning the OLF and to, to discuss options for saving the Pocosin Lakes Refuge. Please welcome Chris Canfield. There's Tom Earnhardt. Okay, I'm on, Brent. Great. Um, We'll start that in a second, but I, you know, before we get into all the political nitty-gritty of this, I kind of want to take you back to where I want to go, which is about three, four months ago, um, in the middle of Pocosin Lakes National Wildlife Refuge. I want you to imagine that it's freezing cold, the wind's blowing on you, and I want you to first experience why we're doing what we're doing. So Brent, if you can roll, roll that. This is what matters to Audubon, it's what matters to those of you who care about wildlife in North Carolina, um, and it's why this battle for four years has been so important to me, and frankly to so many other organizations and individuals in this state. I know many of you have had a chance to experience this, but if you haven't, it's, it's a life-changing experience. And if you're there at sunrise near Pungo Lake and you see this kind of mass of birds rise up into the sky, it literally reverberates through your chest. These snow geese number as many as 80,000 snow geese, a record number this year. And they move out from that lake in the morning and they're out here in agricultural fields and they're feeding. And the winter that they spend here in North Carolina is crucial to their survival because when they leave here, after five or six months of feeding and resting, 
They're going to go back up to a very short season, a very short breeding season on the northern tundra, Canada and, and beyond. And some of the geese will lay eggs within two weeks of leaving here. So what we call energetics is very crucial. You know, these snow geese can weigh five to eight pounds. Um, and they think that North Carolina and this part of North Carolina is one of the most fantastic places you could spend the winter. Now, when I'm standing out there, it's darn cold, but I don't have those kinds of feathers all over me. As I said, it's not just the Pocosin Lakes refuge that's crucial. It's the agricultural fields around it. And these snow geese are joined by tundra swan. Tundra swan numbering from 20 to 30,000 at this one area. About 25% to 27% of the entire Atlantic flyway population of tundra swans have found this to be their ideal winter home. And these birds that can weigh 15 to 20 pounds, the tundra swans, they go all the way up to the tundra above Canada as well as Alaska. I have done banding comparisons that the same birds that are in North Carolina in the winter are in Teshekpuk Lake in the Colville River area of Alaska, um, linking these two extremes of the United States. What you just saw the Navy had not seen when it decided to put a landing field here. Court evidence and depositions showed that their biologists had only been there in the summer. They came after we invited them. Tom Earnhardt, Joe Albee, and a couple of the rest of us got the Navy in. We didn't have media. We were really behind closed doors. We wanted the Navy to see this. Well, afterwards, they put up this radar study. And I like what a guy at the Hyde County hearing a week ago Monday said. He said to the Navy, he said, gentlemen, I know you spent a lot of money and time and effort in this scientific study, but I don't need a scientific study to tell me this is not going to work. It's not only the home to these, these snow geese and tundra swans, you have the greatest density of black bear in America there. And you have red wolves, the only population, viable population of the wild out there at Pocosin Lakes. That's why we care about this, and that's why we think what the Navy has stumbled into first out of ignorance and stayed with now out of arrogance uh, is devastating to North Carolina and indeed to a national resource. So where did all this begin? Well, it began in the year 2000 when the Navy decided it was going to have these new Super Hornet jets brought into its inventory. And of course, everyone's scrambling. They want the jets in their hometown, all the money that comes with it, the support for their base. That's great. That happens. I was in the Pentagon, as Betsy said. I know the dynamics of that. And so what you got off this map is Oceana Base, up a Naval Air Station in Virginia, and you've got Cherry Point. Oceana, at the time, Senator John Warner is the head of the Senate Armed Services Committee at that time. He wanted the planes to come there. He wanted the economic benefit to keep that base vital. They already had the, uh, the Hornets that they've got, and they were going to replace them with Super Hornets. That's fine. Okay, so we've got up there. In the meantime, they decided, well, let's base most of those up here at Oceana, and let's put that's, you know, eight squadrons up here, two squadrons down here at Cherry Point. Well, there's a little bit of logic problem there. You've got to support these planes down at Cherry Point and up there, kind of duplicating effort. But okay, that's what they wanted to do. So they popped a line between the two, looked at halfway point, there it was. That's where the landing field's gonna go. It's halfway between the two. Bunch of farm fields, and that's about the extent of the analysis they seem to have done. Again, they'd never been there in the winter. At the same time, we heard that they were planning 
to want a whole new section of military airspace to do dogfight dog combat training through it. So, you know, at the same time they were looking to do the airfield, they wanted this airspace. And we started to get concerned that not only was this a bad spot for a landing field, but it was really going to add up to a devastation of the whole Albemarle Peninsula. Why does Audubon care? Well, of course it's birds, and you associate Audubon with birds. But we also have an important bird areas program that over the last six years has been a scientific evaluation of what are the most important habitats in North Carolina to protect for birds. And we've done all the analysis, found 90 plus sites, uh, you've got all this acreage that many of which, you know, much of which doesn't have protection. But what we were discovering in this case is that even when it's a federally protected national wildlife refuge, which you think you could forget about and move on to other lands, it's not. When something like this Navy plan comes forward, we still have to step forward and re-protect what should already have been protected. And so this uh, rather complicated map is our GIS analysis. Here's Pungo Lake. All this red area you see here are agricultural lands that those birds feed in. Here's approximately where the landing strip would be. And you can kind of see right off, you got a real problem. The only worse place to put this, if there is such a thing, is right down here. This is Lake Matamuskeet, somewhat more famous, I think, than Pocosin Lakes until the last couple of years. They wanted this landing field right here with jets doing takeoff and landing, circling right here above the northeast corner of the lake. So you can tell these are planners sitting in an office in Virginia or Washington, D.C. without real knowledge of the, of the area. So when you mix these birds and these planes, you've got a severe problem. And it's a problem for the birds and for the planes. Um, and having been in the Pentagon, I knew, I knew that there were conflicts inherent in this sort of arrangement. And it's what we call the bird strike hazard problem for the military and frankly civilian aircraft. When you and I fly out of airports like I did today, those airports have to manage for wildlife and bird impacts. And I'm very glad that we know how to do that because this is a severe risk. In the military you're talking about losing a lot of, a lot of aircraft that are very expensive and even 34 deaths. Um, and one fellow today from Ducks Unlimited who was talking to the media, he said, I grew up in Alaska and I remember when an, an AWACS Air Force plane went down in Elmendorf, Alaska in 1995. It was brought down by Canada geese at the end of the runway. 24 crew members died in that. He said it devastated the community. So bird strike is very real. Um, what I'm about to show you is the cockpit recorder from a Canadian training and there is an instructor pilot and a trainer, uh, a student pilot in this and if you will look right in this area as I run the video you're going to see a figure come in and that is a bird going into the engine of the plane. This is okay to show children, don't worry. You saw that bird just move in. Oh, it's a British constructed aircraft, so it's got that British accent in the, in the automated voice system. They've lost an engine. They're trying to pull this plane around after it tried to take off. The automated voice thinks they're trying to land.
they're, they're trying to restart the engine. They can't restart the engine after ingesting that bird. Both pilot and student pilot ejected. That's the aircraft going into the ground. That's what's going to happen at Pocosin Lakes National Wildlife Refuge at some point if the Navy builds the landing field there. And I will, I will tell you, because I know you're worried, as I would be, you know, what happened to those pilots. Both of them came out of that fine. They were able to eject. I think one of them had some back injuries. But, you know, luckily that wasn't a fatality. They just lost a multi-million dollar aircraft. So why would the Navy come here? Well, I don't know. But the first thing I did when I met with the Navy was show them this chart. And this is all, any of you can find this on the web. It's a, it's a chart that shows where the most severe areas in the country are for bird strike. And in the winter, in January, there are a few places along the entire East Coast that are as bad as right here in the Albemarle Peninsula. This, in fact, is the exact chart. I showed the Navy in January of 2003. Tom was there. And I said, you know, fellas, I am not the expert. But the way you read this chart, it seems to me, is that pink is bad and green is good. And right where you want to put this landing field, you got a severe problem six months of the year. What, what am I missing? Uh, and they didn't say much at that meeting. I think they were a little stunned to know that we knew something about this. But I'm not the expert on bird strike. But I put this out in the press. I started talking about it. You know, there is a bird strike issue. And then I started calling around. I called people actually in the Navy who do this work. Because if you imagine, Audubon people love birds. Birds people kind of hang together. I found some people from within the Navy who would talk off the record. And they said, yeah, this seems really severe. But I can't go public. And I started getting this sort of chain of references. What I ended up finding was a fellow by the name of Colonel Jeffrey Short. And I told him about this. He had been head of the Air Force's management of bird strike safety for years. And he said it was a, it was a ludicrous proposition to put a landing field here. And he wrote this to a, in a letter to the Secretary of the Air Force and copied the governor of North Carolina. Well, again, he was retired, he wasn't you know, in it, but we kept pushing this point. And eventually one day I got a call after the Navy had publicly decided it was gonna build this landing field. And it was fr by, from a guy by the name of Ron Merritt. And what he said is, you know, I was inside the Navy study and I've been reading all that you've been putting out about the bird strike issue and how stupid we were in our study and don't know what we're doing and I'm sick of hearing of it. And I thought he was gonna tell me what an idiot I was. And he instead he said, and the reason I'm sick of it is because you are right. You are right that the Navy has downplayed the severe risk at this site. And I said, next, do you want to go public on that? And he said, yes. And this is what he said. It's not if a bird strike is going to occur, it's when the Navy dangerously underestimates the risk that this site poses. This is the fellow who ran the Navy's radar study after we'd shown them the birds. But as the guy at Hyde County said, you don't need a scientific study to see what a folly this is. Editorial cartoons sort of sum things up in ways I really love. Sort of the haiku of journalism. So your mission aviators is to master these alternate flight paths and schedules. And that's really the Navy's attitude, sadly, to this day. They think they can manage the birds and move them around with some predictability. If you talk to the Fish and Wildlife Service experts who've been managing these birds for decades, they'll tell you day after day, week after week, year after year, they truly don't know where the birds are going to go, when, 
and how and why. So our position at that time and still is that this bird strike risk is unmanageable at this site. That wildfowl wild, wild management attempts at this site are going to require more and more aggressive measures. And you've probably heard recently about the revelation that they are planning to use lethal, even means of using poison to try to harass and move the birds out of there. And we don't think there's any scientific basis, and this has been recently shorn up by the head of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that there will be no or minimal disturbance to birds and wildlife for this landing field. And that's what the Navy has been maintaining. They've upgraded a little bit in the recent study and called it moderate, but it's still way underplayed. And, we, and at the time, we were talking about this sort of 900 square miles of airspace for dogfight battle, this new airfield, and they're basically going to ruin the Albemarle Peninsula. But throughout this whole process, I want it to be clear that we and just about everyone we've had in alliance with us has been absolutely willing to find a workable alternative, absolutely willing to compromise and work with the Navy. And the only people unwilling to come to the table and work have been the Navy. Well, we had no choice but to take this to court, and when we did, we found a sympathetic ear in Judge Terrence Boyle. By many accounts, pretty darn conservative judge, uh, a protege of Jesse Helms and a Reagan appointee to the bench, but he was having none of what the Navy was trying to argue in court. He stopped it, he agreed with us on almost every count, and he certainly wasn't persuaded by the Navy's claim, as was popular at the time and less popular today, of national security threats and that the Navy needed anything it wanted. Uh, of course, the Navy didn't accept that, appealed it to, to a court that's even more conservative than Judge Boyle might be, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond, by all accounts the most conservative court in the nation. Two of the three judges on the bench hearing our case were on the short list for the Supreme Court when President Bush was considering those names. They gave the Navy every benefit of the doubt they could. I was in the courtroom, you could tell those judges wanted to give the Navy what it, what it was asking for and they couldn't. That's how shoddy the job was that the Navy had done in assessing the environmental impacts. So they were ordered to redo their study to begin what's called a supplemental EIS that was going to be due out early 2007. So how did we get here? You know, I've outlined a little bit. Well, in the process of developing the case for the courts, we went through 200,000 pages of documents that they were required to turn over to us. We had interns from, and, and legal students from UNC and Duke University. The two schools worked together, mind you. Um, and they went through every page of that 200,000 pages. And they found some very revealing things in emails. And if you don't think your email traffic has a future, you might want to pay attention to this. We learned that politics had been the driver on this, not military need, from the get-go. We discovered that Admiral Natter, who was commander of the Atlantic Fleet, had a problem with noise in the local communities around Norfolk and around Chesapeake, Virginia, where they were currently operating. And he told them, he promised them, well before the study had really been underway, the reason they were looking for an outlying landing field was to deal with their noise concerns. The Navy, in fact, has dealt with thousands of lawsuits in the Virginia area because of the increased noise. Because each new generation of plane they bring into the inventory is louder than the one before it, so the impact on populations gets more and more. And so people who originally didn't think they were in the zone for noise get it. And in the meantime, the Navy had purchased easements 
uh, 15 years ago on properties around some of these sites, they never enforced those easements. Now, easements are what stop people from developing. They've been paid not to develop so that they wouldn't have the impacts to the base. The Navy didn't enforce those. Development occurred, so they had this huge problem with people being all around the base and complaining about the noise of the jets. So they're going to export the noise, and that's exactly what this cartoon sums up for you. Um, and I'm sad to say, you know, as a North Carolinian now, it, one more time when Virginia treats us like this, uh, come on, we got to get past this. North Carolina deserves better. We also discovered that this whole idea of splitting these planes between the two bases, frankly, didn't make a lot of military sense. Um, one of the commanders involved with this, who left us a trail of breadcrumbs in a number of places, um, he said, you know, there's no way. They want us to come up with reasons. And, and OPNAV is the operational part of the Navy and the Secretary of the Navy. Their staffs are trying to tell us, make up why it works to split these, these planes in two different locations. You've got to support both of them with similar operations. Now, you know, I'm not politically naive. I do understand that the state, people in the state of North Carolina want planes to go to Cherry Point to bolster that base, to get the money. We can accommodate that, but let's not delude ourselves. This was not, first and foremost, a military decision. So why did they split those planes? It's exactly what we found in an email. They had to pay off people in North Carolina in order to bring the landing field into the state. That's just the way it is. And once they'd made that decision long before this study had been done, they made the, study, the, the decision process is supposed to be you study all the alternatives, lay out objectively what the options are, you present it to a decision maker, and he decides. It's not the way this one worked. They decided early on, and then they reverse engineered the whole process to support this conclusion. That's from their own people inside the study. It's sort of like in chemistry lab, remember you wanted to get an A on the lab and you knew what the outcome of the experiment was supposed to be, so you kind of tweaked the thing as you went along. That's not good objective science and it's not good objective ways to make decisions on things this important. Well, obviously they'd put themselves in a corner and they had to ump, uh, up the uh, ante on why they were doing this. They talked about surge, you know, this, originally it started out as noise and basing the planes surge, you know, and our national security became the big thing. Fentress is the field that currently supports the planes at Oceana. They leave Oceana, they go over to this field in Chesapeake, they do their takeoff and landing practice. And landing on a carrier at night is one of the hardest things any pilot could ever imagine to do. I'm totally sympathetic with the need to train. But they've been training at Fentress for years to do that. They've been going out operating on carriers, but they had to pretend like Fentress didn't work anymore. Interestingly enough, they took the reverse argument when the base realignment and closure was looking to close Oceana because it was so in, encroached. The same admirals stood before the BRAC Commission, it was on television, telling them how important Oceana was and how functional and, and necessary Fentress was, and they didn't want those bases closed. Judge Boyle again heard all of their arguments, wasn't buying any of it. He looked at the evidence and said, you're, you really can already support your needs at the current facilities. You're trumping up why you need this new LLF. So, you know, we went in court. We do all the things we think you're supposed to do, and surely logic and, and actually, you know, humanity will prevail. Um, sadly, not so. The supplemental EIS just 
you know, work went on and every evidence we had through the process is that the Navy was going to stay at that same location. And here's a new map uh, that will show you exactly where Pungo Lake is there, Lake Phelps, uh, Van Swamp Gameland, and this is where they still have been wanting to put the OLF throughout this process. Now, one of the things they did when they were ordered to go back and study it is they said, well, let's show you that the planes can operate in this airspace and not disturb the birds, and the birds aren't a safety risk. So on December 7, 2005, we had all media out there. Joe Alby uh, had his camera, his high-definition camera out there. The Navy did some pretend takeover, I mean, pretend takeoff and landings at this site. And this is what they ran into. These are tundra swans. These are the 15 to 20 pound birds that could take this plane down. It is, uh, Brian Roth is the mayor of Plymouth, North Carolina, the town about 10 miles from the epicenter of this. He's a former Navy flight officer. He knows a lot about Navy flight avi uh, engineering and aviation. He said, this is the kind of thing where when the guy goes back home, he's sweating bullets and he's going to write a really scary report. Um, so this happened at, at the OLF site C near Pocosin Lakes. This is how close they got. All the media got it. Um, and the reason they do that is because it's not just the landing field. These are the patterns they have to fly, these racetrack patterns as they're touching down, pulling back up, coming around, touching down, pulling back up, doing that eight or ten times when they get there. And you've got these birds flying all over this airspace. I mean, it's just ludicrous to think of, of operating that way. Well, not only did it happen December 7th, but in December 8th, the very next day, they went down to Mesquite. That landing field I showed you right at the northeast tip of Mesquite. They were trying to, to simulate those takeoff and landings. And I heard last night from a guy who owns land down there with the Wildlife Resources Commission, it was above his land that this occurred. He said he saw, his, his, his manager of his land saw the plane go in, it was trying to pretend to do its, its landing, a, a bunch of ducks came up out in front of it. He saw the plane raise its nose up and it was going so slowly it almost stalled out. He saw, his, his manager saw it go below the tree line, literally sink towards its engine and the, and the pilot had to kick in the thrusters to have any hope of saving that plane, pulled out and he radioed in that he was aborting any future attempts to do this simulated takeoff and landing. So Madame Mesquite, one pass, less than one pass, and the pilot called in and said, I'm done, I'm over with. And even the PR people of the Navy couldn't cover that up. In the meantime, we discovered from our friends at Fish and Wildlife Service that they have records now of the red wolves moving directly on to the OLF site. Um, I promise you, no one from Audubon that I know of had anything to do with letting any red wolves go. I do joke, Derb Carter is the lawyer for the Southern Environmental Law Center, and uh, he's, he's, he's actually one of the best birders in the state too, but he's also our lawyer on this. His wife, though, raises show dogs, big, huge hounds of some sort, so I do have my suspicions there, but no, these are, these are, these are actual um, you know, radio telemetry and other, other uh, ways to mark where the wolves are. So as you can see, the wolves, like the birds, don't read the signs at the edge of the refuge. You know, that's what the Navy doesn't understand. They don't read it, and they're moving where they find the right habitat. Um, there is a problem, of course, with the red wolf's setup here. They're an endangered species, so you would think, well, that'll just stop it cold. The problem is, to get the red wolves reintroduced, we had to sort of ratchet down their standing so that they could go on private lands without private landholders 
feeling like they were being you know, invaded by an endangered species. So when they're, the law is unclear, but the way it's supposed to read is that if their populations in national wildlife refuges or parks, they are given threatened status protection. If they're on private lands, they're considered an experimental population. So, you know, there are nuances there. But as far as I can see, the wolves that are here are the wolves that are coming off the refuge. And unless they're going to change their status when they cross a line in the sand or a line in the field, those, these wolves deserve the same protections as the one on the refuge. Certainly, if we have to get to court again, we'll test that theory. So the Navy comes out with this new statement. Some may have had hope that the Navy was going to do something new and rational. Sadly, we didn't have that hope. And they, indeed, recommended Pocosin Lakes again. Public hearings and comments are ongoing at the moment. And they predict that they will take those comments in their draft, come out with a final SEIS in the fall with a decision early in, in 2008. I mean, the, the Navy controls this, so I, I can't guarantee that timing. We don't want to get down this road. We want the thing to change now. We don't want this decision process to go through all of this. Um, if you're interested in looking at the Navy study, that's the website where you can get it, olfseis.com. Um, and the real question is, you know, what's the Navy going to tell us in this new study? Well, they don't tell us much, except they do reveal their hand that, sorry, that point was supposed to be down there, but they're going to control crops on 20,000 acres. They have a 30,000 acre area, and 20,000 acres of that has food crops on it that the birds have been known to feed in regularly. So they decided, well, we got to control the crops. We're going to buy out uh, a certain portion of that, maybe 13,000 acres, and we'll have easements on the rest of it. And we'll tell those farmers they can't grow wheat, winter wheat, corn, soybeans, or other grain crops. They're going to have to grow cotton, or we're going to turn it into turf grass. Um, so that's their plan. You know, get the birds, food away. Um, but that's not going to be enough. And if you read their bash, their bash plan, which really isn't a plan, they haven't really done the deep analysis necessary to create a bash plan. But their conceptual bash plan is not only that, but we'll be harassing them with guns and cannons and noise things. We'll have border collies out there. We'll be putting poisons out. They're going to throw everything in the arsenal. And again, I am very glad that we know how to manage this hazard at an existing airport where you've got some problems. I'm glad that I can fly safely because people know how to do this. And frankly, personally, if it takes killing a few Canada geese, as an Audubon member, I will still put up with that for the safety of human beings, okay? I'm not there hugging every bird for every reason. There are times when you've got to do that for safety. But to build a landing field in the middle of 100,000 swans and geese when you already know it's a problem, that's when I and everyone else I know has a real problem with it. They also claim, oddly enough, that Manna Mesquite, a few miles away, with similar kind of birds, is totally unworkable and have severe damage to the refuge, just no longer in consideration. And yet, Pocosin Lakes is manageable with moderate impacts to the refuge. And anyone who knows the two refuges in that area will tell you there is no way, no way the Navy can draw such a fine distinction between those two sites. Um, if Manna Mesquite doesn't work, I can guarantee you Pocosin Lakes doesn't work. And in some ways, Pocosin Lakes, because the agricultural fields around it is actually worse um, in terms of attracting and moving those geese. So in the meantime, also the political landscape has changed. As many of you are aware, we, we do have a new party in charge of Congress. Uh, that's happened since the last setup, and that means that Senator John Warner is no longer the head of the Senate Armed Services Committee. The Navy needs to pay attention to that. They're no longer playing for the same leadership that they were before. 
And then, as we all know, the same day that this came out, the governor issued his very strong statement against this plan, asking Congress to cut funding for the Navy. It's been joined by Senator Bassnight, Hagney, by uh, Troxer with Agriculture, with a whole bevy of other people. And just yesterday, Congressman Price came out with one of the strongest statements I've ever seen from any congressman on an issue. Incredibly strong. Um, so, you know, the world is lining up against this plan, rightly so. But as this cartoon shows, we're not quite there yet. Not quite there yet. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be oddly fair to Senator Dole. I know some people wouldn't expect that. Um, but, but I'll be honest, she has listened to almost every argument that we put forward. She did listen to one of the bird safety experts, Ron Merritt, that we brought forward. She's collected a heck of a lot of data, but she's never quite taken a position of leadership that she should on this issue. She's on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and I can only hope that after this process, which she seems wed to, is done, that there will be so much evidence, if one needs any more, uh, for her to really take a strong stand, because she could resolve this for the benefit of the Navy and the benefit of North Carolina. And this doesn't have to be a political free-for-all, whether you're Republican or Democrat. That's not what this is about. It's not about that because you have the current administration's head of Fish and Wildlife, Dale Hall, coming all the way down to Hyde County, standing before the Navy, with whom he was supposed to be a cooperating agency on this study, and saying, yeah, you collected all the data, but you made this... Log illogical leap to all of your conclusions. The data is there, but your conclusions that there's no impact doesn't make any sense. And fundamentally, you really don't have to say anything more than yet. You've got a wildlife refuge whose mission is to draw all these birds in and has been doing it for 40 years. You've got a proposed military base or military airfield whose job will be to push all the birds away. Two federal operations that are absolutely in contradiction. There's no way the two can coexist. And then just today, as Betsy was saying, uh, some very, what normally are not very advocacy-oriented, very public-oriented uh, groups have joined with the rest of us who've been very vocal in going to court. And so it was a red-letter day for me to see National Audubon Society standing up with National Rifle Association, with Ducks Unlimited, uh, Wilderness Society, strange bedfellows even within the environmental wildlife community, all standing up saying the same thing. This is an unacceptable site, and the Navy has got to work with the state leaders to find a new site. So, if you agree with me and you agree with the birds, uh, birds are smarter than we think. So we, we, we have got to do something about this. Um, and I will take your questions and look forward to answering as best and as honestly as I can.